Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and open up because I don't like to do anything without the, His covering. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this. I thank you personally for helping me put the lecture together. And I ask now, Father, that you just let anything that is of me and is nonsense, let it fall away, not stick. But what are you trying to say? And we ask all, I lift this up to you and ask for your word to take root. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well... Like I said, um, as we mentioned last week in chapter 11, there, were, there are approximately 135 prophecies in Daniel that have already been fulfilled. And so from here on, continuing in the study of chapter um, 11 and on through chapter 12, we're going to be talking about the unfulfilled prophecies. So in this next section will be the ultimate fulfillment of the little horn that we talked about in, um, in Daniel, the little horn that comes up, and that's the Antichrist that is to come. And there are differences of how this all plays out through different commentaries. So what I'm going to do is share the most popular. Because if we explored all of the different commentaries and all the different directions, we would be very, very, very confused. And God is not a God of confusion. So we're going to go with the most popular. All right, so when we begin with chapter 11, at first we think the passage is still a continuation of those atrocities that Antichus and uh, Epiphanes was in history that was the precursor to the Antichrist. But starting in verse 36 of chapter 11, the subject seems to switch from Antichus to the Antichrist, mainly because verses 36 through 45 do not correspond historically with what we know about Antichus. That's why chapter 11 was so important, because we can compare history to scripture, and it lines up beautifully. So here in chapter 30, um, excuse me, verse 36, the Antichrist in scripture is referred to as the king, whereas while Antichus was also always referred to as the king of the north. And I didn't, I didn't put a PowerPoint together, but in, in uh, 1128, one of the last things, they, it's the king of the north will return to his own country. I think it even said with great wealth, but will set um, his heart against the holy people. But Antichus is always referred to as the king of the north, whereas from here on out, the king, commentaries are believing, are referring to the Antichrist. Another example, though, is that the Antichrist does what he pleases because of his immense power. Whereas Antichus, although he was powerful, he was hemmed in by others more powerful than him, such as Rome. So, um, we're going to jump to verses 36 and 37, and it says that the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against God and of the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of the wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Okay, well... Let's compare with Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. It says, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemes to exercise his authority for 42 months. Now, scripture we just talked about talked about a t determined time. And then 
Um, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. So, also, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, it's re- he's referring to the Antichrist. He says, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. So, th- so these are three areas where we just, we're starting to see that they're, I don't want to say complement each other, but they overlap each other with one of the same things of how they're describing it. But let's go back and review verses 36 and 37 again. I highlighted different things. We're going to extract different things from these verses. So as the king does as he pleases, for what has been determined must take place. So I, I just wanted to point that out because this is a determined time that God has, God is in control. I just want to constantly remind us, God is in control. He's got this all laid out. This is part of his plan. So God remains in control and allows the Antichrist to succeed only until the appointed time when his end will come. And we learned his end will come. And this is the running theme throughout the book of Daniel, that God is in control and it is all a part of God's mysterious plan. But what else are we finding from these verses, 36 and 37? He will also show no regard for the gods of his fathers, nor will he regard any god. All right, well, some commentators say that the Antichrist will be a Jew. Yeah, not, we don't know for sure, but we're assuming he will show no regard for the god of his fathers. But in fact, we learn he will not... He will not um, have any regard for any God. So that's why we can't say he's absolutely positively. We're not sure. He breaks um, any kind of alliance with all previous religious traditions in order to set up his own. And then these verses also point out that he will show no regard or for one desired by women. Now that's even more confusing at times in this statement. He will show no regard for the one desired by women. Well, here we find little agreement with the commentators. Here's some of the points. Some explain it as a reference to the goddess Nania, Nanania, uh, others Adonis, and both of these were deities from the era in Syrian control uh, centuries ago. And then some think it refers to homosexuality, suggesting that the king is abnormal and is disinterested to women. And then still others think it points to the cruelty that Antichus showed and therefore the Antichrist will show, since he's a precursor, uh, to the women he is sexually involved in. So you have three different views, so we can't camp in one thing, but that's why that statement was there. But we know it's bad. But we know it's bad, right. So, and then verse 38 says, he will honor a god of fortresses. All right, meaning this willful king will make war his God. He will love war. And this verse is another place where there is a difference between Antichus and the Antichrist. Although Antichus seemed successful at war, he lost more battles than he won. And beating up on the little people of his world while he was being forced to retreat by the big boys, which were Rome and Egypt, right? Remember the Roman commander we talked about last week when he tried to uh, uh, take on Asia again and he was met with the fleet and I forgot the commander's name. It's escaped my head. Um, but, um, and, he, and he said, well, 
he wanted to go forth and he and he was he was told he needs to retreat and he had a letter from Rome and he's and he said well I, I I'm gonna think about it and he's and he drew a circle around Antichus and he said you have you cannot step out of the circle until you made up your mind it was humiliating and then he went back and he <laughs> annihilated all these Jews okay well the Antichrist will be a supreme warrior and love making war against nations but here's the thing he will be very successful at it too and the Antichrist, most commentators say, will invade the Middle East and Israel and conquering nations like lightning speed, like Alexander the Great did when he conquered so many people, uh, so many countries so quickly. It says he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood, verse 40 says. The countries mentioned, though, Edom, Moab, and Amnon, which is modern Jordan, escape his invasion. Now, we don't know why. We just know they will. So, the king uh, in scripture and the word he used in these scriptures do not give us a definite identity to this king, but probably the best choice is that he is a great ruler. Antichus, like I said, was clearly the king of the north in scripture. So, he in scripture, in my belief, uh, is pointing us to the Antichrist from here on out. When you see scripture, it refers to he. It's talking, we're assuming he's talking about what is to come, the Antichrist. And so he subdues Egypt and conquers Libya, which is west of Egypt, and Cush, which is modern Sudan, and that's to the south of Israel. And the Antichrist will have many military uh, victories and will make his headquarters in Jerusalem, which is where the Temple Mount is. And also, in verses 44 and 45, it says, But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch his royal tents between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, it seems that the Antichrist receives the word some sort of word from the Middle East that causes him to rush back in great rage. And many scholars believe that this describes the advance to the battle of Armageddon. That's what they believe. And since he will pitch his royal <coughs> tents between the seas and the beautiful seas, most scholars agree that the seas are the uh, Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. So remember though, I'm giving you what many commentators say, Prophecy is interpretive, hold it loosely, and the scripture here could be that it's gearing up for the great and final war, like I mentioned, the Arm at Armageddon or not. We don't know. No one knows for sure, but there are lots of interpretations here, so I think it's not wise to, to speculate or encamp there, but here's what I do know as fact from scripture, is that the Antichrist's demise, and I love that it only takes one sentence to record his end. I love it. And yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. End of story. Done. Moving on. And I love that because I want you to remember God is in control. He is in control. He, this is not a contest for the God of the universe. He is not at all threatened by the Antichrist and what's going to go on and Satan and what's all driving that. The Antichrist may be the most powerful and he may be the most evil ruler this world has ever seen or known. But he is, to God, he is merely a dismissed speck of dust yep. by that sentence. Um, that it looks like he comes this into way. power because he is um, 
appealing and to oh, yeah. everybody's ear. Oh, yeah. And he goes out with everyone hating him. Uh, well, he'll show his true cards halfway right. in the tribulation. But that, people, that all the people would recognize that he was bad at that point. Not all. Not all. What says no one came to help him? No, but I, we don't know how he dies. Well... That's what I mean. That's what I mean. We can't, we, we, it's really hard to say this is it and this is it and this is it. It's, it's speculative. We don't know. Hold it loosely, though. That's why I keep saying that. So let's keep going, though. So moving on to chapter 12. Verse, verse 1 in chapter 12 says, oh, how did I, wait a second. How did I do that? What did I, oh, oh, I jumped ahead. Jerusalem is where Jesus died. And it is where the Antichrist will die as well. The great difference is that Jesus dies in submission to God while the Antichrist dies there fighting God. But God is in control, and he wins at the end. We've read the end of the book. We're on the right team. So, okay, so now moving on to chapter 12. So, at, okay, so verse 1 says, at, the time, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such ha as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. I mean, just think about that sentence, the time of distress that, has, that we've not seen from the beginning of nations. Man. So apparently, yeah. And, and uh, maybe it's worldwide what we're looking at because the Holocaust was just, you know, isolated. We, we have no idea, but... but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Now, we met Michael back in chapter 10 of, of uh, Daniel, and he's also mentioned in Revelation. Here, though, in this scripture, we have confirmation that he serves as a guardian angel to Israel and her people. Michael is also mentioned by his name in Revelation 12, verses 7 and 8. And I didn't put up a slide, but this is what it says. Then a war broke out in heaven... Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So this is confirmation that Michael is a force to be reckoned with, and no wonder he's called the great prince. He's a, he's a fighting, fighting angel. So let's move on. Keep going. We're going to dissect verse 1. So verse 1 also says, There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Like I had said, this, is, this could very well be the great tribulation that they're talking about. And the wording of this verse is very similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 24 through 21. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And Jesus is saying that. So the protection during the tribulation period has been assigned to Michael and all the genuine believers, and they'll persevere through this time of great suffering. And among Daniel's people, there will be those whose names will be written in a book. Well, and that's what it says in the scripture. Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Like we had talked about in the lesson, this is the book of life. And all believers in Christ have their name written in this book and will be saved from eternal judgment. Now, it's very, very, very important right here that if you believe in Jesus Christ, and you believe he's the Son of God, you've asked him into your heart, and you know that he was sent to earth to die for us, and rose again three days later, and sits at the right hand of God the Father, then your name is written in the book of life. It's that simple. But if you have any doubt, any doubt, then that Jesus is the Son of God, then please 
contact me or talk to me after class because this is a very serious subject. Please see me, please see me. And don't, no matter what, no matter what it means for you and your family, if we are to be living during the tribulation, because we don't know, even to death, don't get the mark of the beast. Do not, do not, do not. Because it'll be during a time of great distress. Now, some of us think, many Christians think, well, we're going to be raptured. We're going to be raptured. We're going to, we're going to escape this. Possibly. But you know what? There's no absolute that Scripture says that. We're not sure. But here's my point. Are we ready? Are we going to be mad at God? Are we going to turn from God if we find out that, that we, had, we interpreted Scripture wrong? And we're left to endure a seven-year tribulation? Where are we? So Revelation 13, 16 says, It also forced, some say causes, all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Now, like I said, we can only assume we will not be here. Most of us camp there. But not all, we don't know if we get a get-out-of-jail-free card. We don't know. And, and, um, but, and like I said, Scripture's not clear. But we, have to, but we now here have the knowledge. We have to have the knowledge to know that we cannot get this mark. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid, but it might be so. If this is a distress that has never been seen before, and even in Jesus' words, we can't go get a chip and think God's, you know, I've got to feed my family, Lord. My starving infant, I mean, an innocent infant could be at stake in our lives, and God will understand. Oh, their heart's in the right spot, but Scripture's clear. So scripture's clear that we can't do this. We can't do this with our ailing parents. We can't, we can't buy a home or put roof. We may freeze to death. I, I don't know. I don't want to try to be whatever, but my point is there's no way to accidentally get this mark. You, can't, you make a choice. And that's the challenge. Is the, the, um, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And when we make this choice, whether it's done in compassion or not, and maybe that's why it's so distressful, that uh, whether it's food, gas, housing, jobs, or, or um, you know, a life-saving procedure or something, your choice, though, when you, once you get this chip or once you get this mark, is that you've chosen, you've chosen away from God. You've made a choice. Might be all for the right reasons, but you've made a choice. And there's a cost to that choice. It doesn't matter if you're a church-going Christian or have the best intentions. You choose to get this mark, and this is what Revelation says will happen. This is why I'm being so serious. Revelation 14, 9 through 11 says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark, on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's a hard one for me. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. 
and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That is why I'm driving home this point. This is very clear. Scripture can be really muddy. That's very clear. So we have to be willing. We don't know. I, I certainly hope we're raptured, but I can't tell you absolutely positively. I can only tell what I believe, but I can't say, well, absolutely, Scripture says this. It's left to interpretation. So Daniel's Scripture reference in 12.2 uh, talks about the multitudes who sleep in the dust and the earth will become awake, and, and the dead arise, and at this time they, there's a final judgment, and all are either headed toward everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Please note, though, that this is not the final resurrection of the dead that is spoken of um, in, in um, Revelation. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6 says, I saw the thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, if we talked about how exciting heaven's going to be and we end up getting beheaded, I, I'm not trying to be whatever, but it's not a big deal. I mean, we have to think this is not our world. This is not our world. This is not our world. We have to think heavenly-minded. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests with God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So I just say keep your thoughts heavenly. Think kingdom-minded, always. Daniel is still in his vision, and then he asks the angel, how long will it be? before these astonishing things are fulfilled. And then in 12.7 it says, the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken all these things will be completed. Then Daniel said, I heard, but I did not understand. I found that to be so comforting after going through the last four, three or four chapters of Daniel because all of us are like, what? So, you know, Daniel didn't know either. But we do know that time's time and half a time is three and a half years. And, or we, we assume, uh, most commentators do. I think most of them camp there. But the power of the holy people has been finally broken has significant meaning. Some commentators believe that it is quite possible this would mean that God will need to break the Jewish people until their eyes are opened and they are willing to see Jesus as the true Messiah. Because they're still waiting for the Messiah. And then, but here's what Zechariah said. Zechariah said, The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. 
On that day, I will set out to destroy the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look to me and the the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for a child and grieve bitterly for him who grieves for a firstborn son. That is powerful. But Zechariah goes on to say also in the next chapter, in verse 13, verses 8 through 9, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. Christ will be declared as Savior. Now I have a little story. When George W. Bush was our vice president, he represented the United States at the funeral of former Soviet Union leader Leonid uh, Brezhnev. Bush was deeply moved by the silent protest carried out by Brezhnev's widow. She stood motionless by the coffin until seconds before it closed. And then, just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed an act of great courage and hope, a gesture that must surely rank as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There in the citadel of secular, atheistic power, the wife of a man who had run it all hoped her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life and that that life was the best repre- and was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross and that the same Jesus might yet have mercy on her husband. Wow. Is that not a powerful, powerful thing I found? The ultimate answer, though, is to all of life's trials and tribulations, ladies and gentlemen, whether it's individuals or nations, is the resurrection. For most... Uh, Jesus' resurrection. For most of Israel's history, most of its people have been dead to the truth of the Messiah. But God's word says that one day the nation will be resurrected in faith. We just read that in in Zechariah. Often trials bring us to the faith of Jesus' resurrection, of believing that Jesus is bigger, that Jesus is there. Those who are resurrected have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who's the Messiah of Israel and is the Messiah of the entire world. Daniel sets a sterling example, both as a youth and in his old age. He had received some of the most important prophecies ever given to the Jewish people. That's why it's such a coveted book. It was not always easy for him, but he was always faithful. And we can always think about the trials he's gone through when we go through trials, but he remained faithful through those trials, which should give us hope when we're going through our trials. And Daniel now would go on to a wonderful reward for his faithful life. All of this may still be confusing, but you know what? That's okay, because here's what I want to leave you with. We do not need all the answers to tomorrow to live expectantly today. But we must know the one who is the answer. When our time comes to an end here on earth, 
and we find ourselves standing before God, or standing before Christ, and we will, because uh, the author of Hebrews reminds us that, man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. Jesus is not going to ask, okay, what do you know? He's going to ask, how well do you know me? That's what he's going to ask. So, how well do you know Jesus? I saw a meme go by on Facebook last week, and it said, if you're holding on to that last thread, make sure it's from Jesus' garment. (laughs) I thought that was really good. So I have one more thing to leave you, which I thought was very interesting, because I never, remember I've told you, I don't believe in coincidence when it comes to God at all. So, we um, we don't and won't know it all, but Psalm 118 is the center of the Bible. When you do the all math and everything, it's the actual center chapter or in the Bible, Psalm 118. And, and I don't think that was done by accident because Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. And Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And interestingly enough, the Bible has 594 chapters before Psalm 118 and 594 chapters after Psalm 118. Not 196, not 195, 594, just like before. Psalm, um, within the psalm itself, one could say that verse 8 is in the middle of the entire Bible. So what do you think that verse says? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And that is where we're going to end. So would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, it is such a privilege to study your word. It is such a privilege to get to know you. And Father, I pray that all of us just yearn to seek you more, to walk with you more, because I know you yearn for this relationship with us. And Lord, we trust you. We surrender to you. And we admit we don't have, we don't have a clue of all of what's going on. But we know you do. And we surrender that to you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you just begin to instill hope in us and not despair. I come against you, Satan, with the authority given to me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have no claim on anybody here. And I remind everyone that if any any thought that does not instill hope is not coming from heaven. So I pray that our ears are keen to what's being whispered. We watch the power of our tongue and we speak life into people and hope into people and praise and glory and worship to you, Lord, because you deserve it all. And we thank you for these 12 weeks. And may we all be blessed from it. And may we grow from it. And we lift up this to the matchless and powerful and sovereign name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Mm.